Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Um, now, what are some, oh yeah, well, what are some complications seen with lateral condyle fractures? So uh, a little bit different from supracondylar, but in the <clears throat> uh, lateral condyle fractures, if you just... The thing with orthopedics and uh, the deformities that can happen is think about the side that's affected and what happens on the healthy side. So if the lateral side of the elbow is affected and loses blood supply and stops growing, the medial side can still keep growing. And so what will happen if you get medial overgrowth, uh, you can get cubitus valgus, and then they call it tardy ulnar nerve palsy. And they call it tardy because the uh, ulnar nerve palsy uh, won't show up until later on in the healing process. It doesn't happen immediately. Um, it, it happens like months or years down the road um, where they get this ulnar nerve palsy because the medial side outgrew the lateral side and the ulnar nerve can't quite catch up. And then you can also get capitellar osteonecrosis and then lateral uh, bone uh, spurring. And the capitellum osteonecrosis uh, most likely happens because you did too much of a posterior dissection and you affected the blood supply uh, to the uh, to the lateral condyle, which ultimately is uh, composed of the capitellum. And so uh, moving on to the other side of the elbow, what are some of the mechanisms associated with a medial epicondyle fracture? Yeah, so these are going to be like avulsions or elbow dislocations. Um... I mean, you know, in the pediatric patient, again, the ligaments uh, are pretty, pretty strong and, and stronger than the bones. So you get avulsions in these pediatric patients. And anybody has an elbow dislocation also. So those are kind of some of the mechanisms associated with a medial epicondyle fracture. Now, there's a lot of controversy on some treatments for medial epicondyle fractures, but what is the absolute operative indication for a medial epicondyle fracture? The absolute uh, indications. One is that fracture that's entrapped in the joint. So say you get that uh, that elbow dislocation um, and you reduce it, but on the lateral view, the uh, trochlear uh, uh, gap um, is pretty wide or wider than what you think it should be. Um, and then you compare that to the AP and you don't quite see that medial fragment uh, back in its home, or at least close to the medial epicondyle, um, you may think that the fragment is entrapped in the joint, and then even attempt at range of motion will reveal that it it will stop. Then you want to uh, open that up, free it up, and and place it back into its normal spot. Um, 
if they are a throwing athlete or a gymnast, you can consider uh, fixing those, but that's more of a relative uh, indication. If their displacement is greater than five millimeters, and then if they also have a combined elbow fracture, um, typically these are treated with an open reduction because you are still concerned about the ulnar nerve passing immediately inferior to the medial epicondyle. So you don't want to do this in a closed fashion and then uh, either fixate the ulnar nerve in the fracture or put your pin through the ulnar nerve, then through the bone, because that's oh, also not uh, ideal. Not good. <laughs> no, not <laughs> and good. Then, uh, and then you want to do some, maybe some screw fixation, just because that medial epicondyle is so small, it's very hard to get multiple pins in a divergent nature across that for fixation. So you're probably going to use a screw for this. Um, but let's say you get a phone call from the ER they got a two-year-old patient or, or a patient that's under three years old. And uh, they're like, yeah, something is just kind of funky about this elbow. We thought it was an elbow dislocation, but we're not quite sure. What are some of the other things you can think about? Yeah, one thing I have on your on your uh, differential is a distal humerus physio fracture. Um, so I guess short clues for this is you still may see the radius and the capitellum lined up, but the uh, the humeral shaft is a little displaced. So it's actually a physio fracture of the entire distal humerus, which is associated with non-accidental trauma. Uh, and for these, what may be helpful in, um, in getting your diagnosis, maybe an arthrogram, an MRI, or an ultrasound, all these, these three different images can, can help. So again, if somebody's like really young, less than three years old, just Make sure you don't forget about the distal humeral uh, physial fractures. And so, so what is the treatment for these, these distal humerus physial fractures? Uh, they can be treated very similar to a supracondylar humerus fracture uh, with close reduction and pinning. Um, if they are a late diagnosis, um, you don't want to close reduce, um, close reduce these. It's This may be more of one where you kind of, you let the patient um, grow into it and see if they can either self, um, self-regulate and their distal humeral physis can, um, kind of come back into a more normal angulation, or if, uh, it doesn't, then when they're older, um, and their physis is closed, you can consider some sort of supracondylar osteotomy for uh, correction. But just like you said, these, a, a kid who's two years old, shouldn't be doing stuff that is such high energy to cause fractures really. And so these are associated with non-accidental trauma because they are fairly high energy uh, type injuries. So um, report those. And if you're, and if you're wrong, you're wrong. It, it, it is what it is. But uh, again, it's better to be uh, overly cautious and report it and be wrong than it is to say, you know what, I, I believe the family and then the patient goes back to an abusive home. So, um, yeah. always report if you, if you're concerned about it. So, uh, and going further down the arm, what's the typical mechanism for a pediatric, uh, proximal radius fracture? Yeah. So it's going to be extension and valgus loading. And I mean, if you just think of it, you just try to think what puts more uh, pressure or more force on that part of the bone. And so if you extend and you apply a valgus load, um, that'll, that'll, uh, that could get you a pediatric proximal radius fracture as well as elbow dislocations. Um, 
those two things. And, and for those that are that are listening to this, uh, we have an episode that hasn't been released yet, but probably by the time this is released, it'll, it'll, it'll be released uh, with Dr. Gibbons going over pediatric upper extremity trauma uh, that, that we cover all of these if you want a, a deeper dive into it. Um, but so what are some closed reduction techniques for pediatric proximal radius fractures? Now, I didn't know if I needed to include this, but I saw this on like three different, like <laughs> from three different sources. And I was like, man, I guess I need to go ahead and include this. But um, what are some closed reduction uh, techniques for these, again, these pediatric proximal radius fractures? So one is uh, elastic bandages, take an S-mark and wrap it tightly around the arm and see if that just pressure can cause the fracture to reduce. The second one is called the Patterson, um, where you get uh, traction and you place a varus on the elbow. So you're releasing some of the pressure off of the uh, radial capitellar joint. Um, you have the elbow extended and supinated, and then you place direct pressure over the uh, radial head to kind of push it back into place. And then the Israeli technique is uh, the elbow is flexed at 90 degrees and taken from supination to pronation with direct pressure over the radial head. And that uh, um, while you are putting pressure and you're moving the, the forearm from supination to pronation, that can help kind of that radial head kind of click into place. These aren't always successful, but they are successful enough to be described in in textbooks and multiple sources. So still good, <laughs> good things to keep in mind. Um, what are some of the indications for the surgical treatment of the proximal radius? Yeah. So, you know, greater than, and again, in pediatric patients. So again, th greater than third degrees of angulation, more than three millimeters of translation. And then if you have less than 45 degrees of pronation or supination. So again, these proximal radius fractures, um, you know, you accept a little bit less deformity, but again, so it's going to be 30 degrees of angulation, three degree, three millimeters of translation. And um, if they have less than 45 degrees of pronation or supination. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS part one exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. ROCK is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access ROCK content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. And so uh, what are some treatment options for pediatric proximal radius fractures? Uh, you can always try uh, K-wire fixation. Um, the one that I've seen the most is uh, actual a, a flexi nail that's uh, placed or distally in the radius and the distal radial uh, metaphysis brought up the radial shaft. And then you use that kind of hockey stick hook to fixate into the uh, proximal radius fracture. And then you can then rotate the nail to help reduce the fracture and hold it in place. Um, 
And then if they are truly unstable, you may have to open reduce them and then use a combination of uh, either K wires or the flexi nail or something to, to get good fixation into the uh, proximal radius fractures. And um, what's the indication to operate on a pediatric olecranon fracture? Yeah, so any, anytime you have intra-articular displacement um, greater than like two or three millimeters. So that's when you operate on those. Again, you want absolute stability at the joints. Um, so what is a nursemaid's elbow? I remember hearing about this in med school. Yeah, <laughs> the nursemaid's elbow is one of those that it's still actually uh, called this even in kind of the uh, orthopedic world. Um, even though it's much more of a like uh, general pediatrician type of diagnosis, but it's basically you get uh, subluxation of the uh, annular ligament and the radial head is then dislocated from the joint with an interposed uh, annular uh, ligament. And um, it's really seen, they call it a nursemaid's elbow because it was kind of the um, it's that longitudinal traction that was uh, placed on the arm when they were like kind of picking kids up by their arms. When you get that longitudinal traction, it can cause that radial capitellar joint to, to distract enough to cause the annular ligament to kind of um, fall into place. And then it, it's interposed and the radial head is subluxed or, or dislocated. And so what's the main treatment for it? Yeah, so this you can easily kind of do this in the office. So uh, you supinate the form, you flex it past 90 degrees, and then you palpate the radial head to feel the reduction. Um, I mean, that's, that's just the main thing. You kind of just reduce these in the, in the, in the office um, pretty quick. It should be painless for the most part. So that's how you uh, will treat a nursemaid's elbow. Again, supinate the form, flex it, and then palpate the radial head and you'll feel the reduction. Now, moving a little bit more distal to the forearm, what is a green stick fracture? Green stick fracture, just like if uh, you remember when you were out playing as a kid and you're trying to break a stick, if the stick was more alive, um, you could only fracture it on one side and it would leave the the bending side intact. So it's an incomplete diaphyseal forearm fracture is a green stick fracture. And the treatment for these is a cast because the uh, one cortex is typically um, still intact. You don't have to fixate these. Um, but uh, what are some of the operative indications for pediatric diaphyseal forearm fractures? Yeah, so, you know, you, you, if you go by age and you remember that the younger you are, the more potential you have for remodeling. So if you have angulation greater than 15 degrees, uh, if you're younger than 10 and you want to treat these surgically or if you have angulation um, greater than 10 degrees, if you are older than 10. So again, angulation greater than 15 degrees, if you are younger than 10 and angulation greater than 10 degrees, if you are older than 10. Um, and that's after, you know, you're, you have attempted a reduction and, and you know, you've, you've cast it and they're still angulated. That is when you will uh, indicate them for surgical treatment. Now, what are some of these, um, what are the surgical indications for a pediatric Montasia fracture? I know we talked about the Montasia fracture in adults, but what about pediatrics? Yep. So pediatrics, um, similar to adults, you want to make sure that um, this fracture is maintaining its length uh, of the ulna so that the radial head remains reduced. 
Um, if it's unstable after the reduction, uh, then you may have to either treat it with an intramedullary nail if it's more of a transverse length stable fracture. Uh, but if it's a uh, more comminuted or oblique fracture, then uh, a flexi nail may not be uh, robust enough to fixate this and you might have to open reduce and, and utilize uh, plate fixation similar to adults. So uh, the key is maintenance of ulnar length so that the radial head can <clears throat> can remain reduced. Um, let's say either one of them was missed or uh, presented late. What is the treatment for a chronic Montasia fracture? Yeah, so for these, again, your, your ulna um, is not all the way out to length or something's wrong with the ulna. So you may need to do an ulnar osteotomy. That way it gives you some freedom that you can reduce the radial head, um, doing an annular ligament reconstruction and you end up plating the, uh, the ulna afterwards. So again, so for these chronic Montasia fracture dislocations and these pediatric patients, you may have to do an ulnar osteotomy, radial head reduction and annular ligament reconstruction. Now, what is a buckle fracture of the distal forearm? The buckle fracture is just a kind of a incomplete, uh, impacted type of fracture. They call it a torus fracture. I think of it like a uh, like you put a dent in a soda can kind of fracture. Oh, yeah, where, that's a good one. Um, there's really no real displacement. It's just a little bit angulated. Most commonly, they're angulated posteriorly. And uh, these are still fairly stable. And depending on the patient, you can treat them in a removable wrist brace or a cast. Uh, in my experience, parents prefer a cast so that they don't have to keep telling the kid to put the wrist <laughs> brace back on. But um, I don't know, for some of these older kids, they get it. They they um, tend to understand what they're supposed to do. And so they may uh, tolerate the splint better than a cast. So um, these are non-operatively treated essentially 100% of the time. And so just place these into a cast. And um, what's the typical treatment for a distal metaphyseal true fracture in a pediatric patient, even one that maybe is is displaced? Yeah. So, you know, we get these in the ED all the time, or at least when I was on pediatrics call, we got these all the, all the time. Uh, and this is one where you, you know, you put them to sleep, some sedation and you attempt to close reduction and you put them in a short arm cast. I think uh, for, for pediatric short arm casting for these distal metaphyseal forearm fractures are okay. When you talk about maybe uh, both bone forearm fraction pediatrics, those who typically use a long arm cast. Um, and so, what are some surgical indications for a distal forearm fracture uh, in these pediatric patients? If you have malalignment after closed reduction, um, pretty, pretty much for anything, um, adult or pediatric, that means that it's unstable or it's, it, it, something is interposed in the fracture and you need to do something about it. So um, if the metaphysis has greater than 20 degrees of angulation, or if there's a bayonet apposition in kids older than 10, um, you're going to want to open, reduce, and uh, treat these with, most likely it's a percutaneous pinning type of procedure through the radial styloid into the uh, distal radial diaphysis slash metaphysis. Um, 
And then if there's residual displacement at the physis uh, greater than 50%, you want to uh, consider maybe not a full open reduction, but you're getting a freer uh, elevator in there to kind of uh, uh, lever it up and put it back in the right spot. Um, and it's one of those that the like the the distal radius, I think, is one of the most common physes for uh, uh, maintenance of growth, uh, whereas the distal femur physis is the one that has the highest propensity to uh, stop growing because it's like very undulating in nature. But the radius, I think, does a very good job of still growing even with a physeal fracture. Um, don't quote me on that because I can't truly remember, but that's what I, I think I remember from residency is that the distal radius physis is very robust and, and reliable to continue growing. Um, but what is a Seymour fracture? Yeah, so Seymour fracture, um, this is a physeal fracture of the distal phalanx uh, with a nail bed laceration. Uh, and the thing about these is you may think it's nothing, but, it, you know, it's actually something. The germinal matrix um, can sometimes become incarcerated and the treatment for this is actually surgical. Um, so it's going to be a treatment of uh, irrigation, debridement, nail removal, nail bed repair, and then fracture reduction with or without pinning. Um, so, again, Seymour fracture, I think I'll show you like a lateral of the phalanx, uh, and you'll see that distal phalanx fracture. Uh, it's going to be a physio fracture of the distal phalanx. And uh, I think that'll basically conclude our upper extremity trauma for pediatrics, trying to cover the high points. There are some things in there that, you know, that the treatment algorithms are somewhat similar for some hand fractures and some adult fractures. And you can go uh, listen to those other uh, sections to get some of that. But yeah, I think we I think that's it for upper extremity trauma. And then we can continue on towards uh, some lower extremity trauma. Sounds good.